Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast brought to you by Birmingham Live. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Claret and Blue podcast. Um, we're pleased to announce we've got a very special guest joining us. It is um, Aston Villa hero turned BBC, but well, the main reason to pay your licence fee really turned BBC funded. It's Mr. Gary Thompson. How are you, Tomo? Oh, not too bad, Matt. Yourself? Yeah, not bad. I actually do pay my licence fee for Strictly Come Dancing as well, so it's not just you. Oh, yeah, but, not uh... just me. <laughs> Tomo, we're going to take. We know you had a kind of uh, a long and varied career as a footballer, yeah. coach, manager, pundit, various other career choices along the way. But this is Aston Villa podcast, so you'll have to forgive, forgive us. We're going to talk purely Aston Villa, if we can. Not, so Not a problem, not a problem. We're going to airbrush out Coventry, West Brom, you know, Bristol Rovers, all that. You mean all Aston the good Villa. bits? <laughs> there were some True. decent bits, I think, because we'll, we'll hit upon during the course of this, some all decent right. bits in Claret and Blue as well. Um, so what I wanted to kick off with was... It's probably a bit of a cliche question, really, but was it was it always going to be football as a career choice for you, mate? From the time, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, to be honest, that me, um, as I say in the book, my brother came, up, brother and sister came over from West Indies, and uh, my brother was playing football. I wanted to get involved in it. Um, being the youngest and the smallest, they wouldn't involve me in it. So I do what any self-respecting seven-year-old does: goes and cries to my mum, got me in the game, and then um, from then on, I just was fascinated by it. I loved it. I went to school, obviously, where they played at school. And um, I ended up, after my last year in junior school, playing against this kid who uh, had sideburns. He was tall, blonde-haired, quick, big as me, quicker than me, stronger than me. And the first time I'd have caught me against anybody that could compete with me. And um, when I found I couldn't beat him at everything, I, at anything, I actually tried my default, which is violence, and he beat me up. Uh, that lad turned out to be Paul Dyson. We, I went to the uh, Bramwood School next and he went to Bramwood School and we became best mates and through Paul I got my chance at Coventry so yeah football was um, in, in the book it's, it's called Don't Believe a Word but football should be called No Plan B because there was no plan B I was playing football that was it so it's um, what, what you say there was no plan B was was school just you know you just kind of daydream through lessons with a, a view to having a kick around in the playground or um, my teachers who, who did turn by the time I went to Coventry and I had to come back for my exam results and I got in the first team and had to come back again. I was like the, the school hero. This lad, he's developed into something. We always knew he'd be something. They had me down as class clown and uh, the lad that potentially had a lot of ability but was not going to amount to anything because he spent all his time messing about in the class. I just, I, I, I didn't, I just get bored. I just, I wanted to be outside in the, in the fresh air, play, kicking a ball around. And so every school lesson was a few of minutes closer to me being outside again because dinner times were brilliant. You could play football. After school, you play football. That's all we ever did. Um, that's all we wanted to do. And um, my teachers, you keep going on. Um, you're not stupid. You can you can learn. You can do this. You can do that. But I had no attention span. I mean, I still, as the wife says now, I've still got very little attention span anyway, unless football's on. So that was me. I, that's what I wanted to be. And like I think about it now, I was so lucky to get into football. Um, but there was no actual plan B. <laughs> I was going to be a footballer. Even when I did, you know, you have your, um, you, you meet the teachers and that, you, 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 you're leaving and you talk to them and they say, what do you want to be when you when you leave school then? And I said, well, I'm going to be a footballer. Be, Seriously, what, what, what do you want to be? I said, well, I think I'm going to be a footballer. By then, Coventry looked at me, but that was all I was thinking about all the time. That's all I thought I could be. So I never really looked at anything else. You got involved by kind of playing with bigger kids then, I presume, yeah. if you yeah. if you were nagging your mum that you could be, you play with your brother and stuff like that. But as a as a physical specimen, if you don't mind me saying, were you always kind of quite advanced? Were you a, a big kid or were you a hard kid who could look after yourself? Or I, I think I was. I became a hard kid because me, um, my brothers, they were all older than me, and they were all apart from Ian, who's eighteen months older than me, and um, he was he was slightly slightly smaller than me. But Glyn was was a lot bigger than me. My sister was obviously a lot bigger than me, and baby Keith, who ended up 
play the commentary. He, he obviously was, was the smallest and youngest in the family. He never got involved in it at the, at the start. But I was always hanging around with them. They were always playing with kids of their age. So naturally, I played against bigger kids all through my school period. And, um, you know, like on a, a school, like school holidays, you get six weeks off. And we used to, me, your mum would give you your sandwiches, your dandelion and burdock. They'd go off to work. You'd be at the house and you'd have to make, make something happen during the day. So you couldn't go back home. And so, like, uh, we'd be out down the park. We'd find kids to play football against. You'd have your daddy on a bird, like you have your sandwiches. You'd just have games of football or games of cricket. And uh, but it was always playing against or playing, against, well, with and against bigger kids. And so, naturally, I mean, you develop quicker because you learn quickly. I mean, when I went to Coventry, they sent me to Bromsgrove, um, Bromsgrove Rovers for about six months. And I played on the right wing there. And I was playing against with I was playing against men, and you just learn very quickly at the age of 15, 14, 15, that uh, you got to get out of the way because they will steam right through you. So uh, I did develop. By the time I went to commentary, I did develop, and I became. I was always quick, and uh, I was skinny, but uh, going to commentary did beef me up pretty quickly. Obviously, you've got this passion for football and having a kick around with your mates and trying yeah. to trying to take your talent as far as you can. But how did the the love of Villa? come about then because that that that's your your world club and that 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 stuck yeah. with you even when you've been on this journey you know across the country i suppose right i'm eight, eight years of age and uh i mean I, I can't remember it being as bad as this but apparently i was a complete pain in the ass so <laughs> one day my uncle charlie turns up and um he's got the, the long trench coat as all your uncles have and the big the hat and that he turns up and your mom says you're off with uncle charlie for the day okay great so we go off for the day it's a saturday we get two buses, we end up at this place. This turns out to be Villa Park. We walk down the road, we go in, and I'm sitting in the Trinity, but I'm sitting really low. So I'm watching the football, the game at eye level. And uh, I was just fascinated by it. And like Villa were then in the old third division. Loved it, loved being close to the players. So it gave me more enthusiasm to go and play when I played with my schoolmates or played in the, in the park. But uh, then my mum said to me, well, if you behave yourself, your Uncle Charlie will take you again and again. He did take me a few times. I was started playing a lot of football by then as well. So he, he didn't take me as much as um, I would have liked to have gone. But uh, playing a lot of football, went to see Villa when I was um, when I behaved myself. And um, then my dad took us to um, and Pelé Santos came over. So this would be like uh, just trying to think now. This got to be 70, 72, 73, something like that. They came over, uh, watched the game, and I, I remember telling Bill Howell the story where my dad picked us up from school because we we didn't know Pelé was coming. Took us from school, took the buses, got down to Villa Park. Remember walking down to Villa Park and it was a night game. And so you could smell the hamburgers and the hot dogs. And I swear, Steve Harley, come up and see me, was playing that. But Bill says that's one of the memories I've been printed on from um, <laughs> going years later because Steve Harley's song didn't come out until 75. But... Um, I walked down and I thought, this is me. I watched the game and I remember Pele and he had his twin, a, a guy called Coutinho. And they were like, the twins, everything they did was exactly the same. Apparently Coutinho did play for Brazil as well, but he wasn't, he never played as many times as Pele. And uh, I'd, once I watched that game, that was me done. I was a Villa fan, game over. So who would have been your early heroes then at Villa Park? Um, we liked, obviously, Jeff Bowden was different. Andy Lockhead was brilliant. We loved him. Charlie Aitken, the man that never got his shorts dirty. Uh, we loved, I loved Charlie. I mean, they had Brian Tyler. That that's some players that you just watched them and you, you really loved. Slewing up was was in there. There, there was players, and my, my brother made a plaque of the team that played in the, the 70 um, final. I mean, my memory's going now, but they got beat. I think it was by Spurs. And like, uh, he made a plaque of that. And we used to read all the names off of that. And Ray Graydon, obviously, really liked. Then, obviously, the, the top man turned up, Brian Little. And once Brian Little, I saw Brian Little play, that was it. That I mean, having seen me play, you know, me and Brian Little, we are poles apart. But in my head, that's who I was trying to be after this time. I suppose somebody who arrived after that was probably a little bit more similar to you in terms of a bustling centre-forward. Andy Gray, he must have been yeah. somebody you admired as well during the, the early parts of his Villa career. Yeah, when Andy came uh, to Villa... I remember um, I used to go and watch the games, but only occasionally because obviously I was now playing. And Andy's, I think it's about four years difference. So by now I'm, I'm on the verge of getting the commentary because I started playing commentary. I played for commentary in, I was 15, I played in the reserves. But this kid turns up, Andy Gray. And I think I said to his boy on, on Twitter, like, the first 18 months was the best centre forward display I've ever seen. 
for a centre forward, got hold of it, brought people into the play, one touch, lay it off, make his runs, get in the box, throw himself at everything. It was just a fearsome exhibition of everything that I, I wanted to be. I, I saw Steve Archibald play when I was a kid at Coventry and he played for Scotland in the 21s. And I looked at him and I was like, that's what I want to be. But before that, the one I wanted to be like was Andy Gray because him and Brian Little, Brian Little had the silks, but Andy was just a proper fearsome centre forward. And when I joined Villa and uh, the year we got relegated, he became a good mate. And uh, I really enjoyed spending time with him because just to watch him move around and talk to people and play. And uh, Andy Gray, even then he couldn't Villa the second time and he was carrying an injury. Unbelievable centre forward. At a time when Villa are just, you know, prob- well, they are they're achieving the, the biggest success, you know, the, yeah. the, the best two-year spell, if you like, two or three-year spell in, in the club's history. What was that like, watching watching from afar? Because obviously your your allegiances now are with a football team that, that pays your wages, but you must yeah. have still had this fondness and this soft spot for what was happening, you know, just down the road. Obviously, I, I took an interest. My dad still went down with his mates because they all worked at the British Lale and Longbridge, so they all still went down. Obviously, when Coventry did play Villa, I'd get them tickets, but they would just give me dog's abuse. Especially, I got sent off once at um, Villa Park. Alan Evans, we had a clash. I swear, Evo jumped out of the, the tackle, hurt his, uh, his collarbone and uh, ended up, I think he missed the uh, European game in the midweek. He blames me for that. He, he, I think he'll take that one to the grave. But uh, I wanted to play for Villa. It was always my ambition to play for Villa. But if I'm playing for Coventry against Villa, there was a thing I didn't realise until I, when I went to Coventry. Everybody hated Aston Villa. So when we went to play Aston Villa, let's do these, can I swear, do these Villa <laughs> and all that. And I was like, Oh, she was about with They hated Aston Villa, but then, for example, I could see Gary Shaw and all them get off the coach and saunter in, and they had a swagger about them. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, yeah. And then I could see why everybody dislikes him intensely. The year they won, they signed Peter with. I think they'd, they'd uh, signed David Geddes was before Peter with, and so uh, there was rumours they'd come to commentary and were interested in taking me, and I was going to be with his understudy. Now I was playing regular then, but I would actually. If you're given a chance, I would have gone to Villa then, even though realistically, as a career move, it would have been poor because Peter Witt never got injured. Peter Witt was fit. Peter Witt scored goals. So I'd have been on the side going, he's not bad, that bloke. So it made sense for me to stay at Coventry, but apparently there was interest then. Never really happened. Then um, I was, was at the Albion and um, they came in for me. Apparently, well, they did come in for me. I met Graham Turner, um, the body Maurice. I had a good chat with him and he tried to sign me. Basically, though, the team, the talk was just turn every other club down and they can, they've got no option to sell, but to sell you to Aston Villa. And I was like, they hate you. They will, there's no way they'll stand for that. But Graham seemed to think that was going to happen. I ended up at Sheffield Wednesday. So when the opportunity came, finally, to leave Sheffield Wednesday, and uh, that was that was a good period. I mean, football-wise, a crap period, but a good period for me, making friends and uh, being a good experience, learning to stand on my own two feet. But when Aston Villa came in, and I was on bundles at Sheffield Wednesday, and I just dropped a lot on it. Yeah, okay, I'm gone. Doug Ellis apparently said it was the easiest deal he ever did. Bearing in mind, Doug could pull people's pants down. But uh, he said it was easy. We just said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you threatens a week. Yeah, OK. And I just signed. I'll give you a oh, give me a Montego as well. So I just signed and uh, walked in and Gary Shaw went, um, you're three years too late, big man. And because Gaz had been injured, and I've known Gaz for years, I just thought he's not happy because he's been injured. But then once I started training and playing, I realised it was completely unlike anything I thought it was going to be. And I was trying to tell the old man, and he was he was just, get your head in the game, what's the matter with you? I'm like, that's not quite how you think it's going to be. But yeah, answer to your question about 10 minutes ago. Yes, I, the pool was always there. And if I had my chance, I was always going to go and play for Aston Villa somewhere along the line. That was the plan. I'm fascinated by the difference between football in the 70s and 80s to football yeah. now in terms of, you know, everybody's superstars now. They drive around in flash motors, you know, the the richest people in society and stuff like that. And I was yeah. going to ask you, first of all, about wages. Now, I don't need you to give me specific details, but right. kind of what, what what was life like then? What what I know you I remember Gary Gary Thompson drives Montego coming across the old scoreboards back in the day. So That's I know right, you yeah. all got bung bunged to Montego, but yeah. what was it like in terms of did you have a modest house? You know when I went to Sheffield Wednesday, they gave me a very good contract. And it was uh, for, for the time anyway, like I mean it worked out, say it was about a grand a week, which is um eighty five one bad money. But I was gonna they gave me it worked out to about another hundred grand with signing on fees and loyalties and this and that, and a, a car and this, and, you know, there was all bits and bobs. So it wasn't, I wasn't doing too bad. 
I go to Aston Villa. Doug offers me six hundred pound a week, which everybody was getting apparently at the time. A uh, hundred pound appearance and twenty five thousand pound to sign. And I just went, yeah, right. Oh, I haven't been months ago. Like, I said, yeah, right. So I signed. And uh, the missus went to me after. What are you doing? And I went, oh. <laughs> look, love, I want to play for. I mean, to be fair to Sheffield Wednesday, because I never asked for a transfer. They had to pay me some of that money. But so and. I, I, because um, I had a big dispute with Doug in the end because I said to him, you know that 25 grand, Mr. Ellis, you hold on to it for the time being. This is how stupid I am. You hold on to it because I had all my money come from Sheffield Wednesday. So I was going to get taxed to death. So I was like, you keep hold of that, Mr. Ellis. I'll come come for you one day and ask for it. When I came about 18 months later, I went, Doug, about that money. But what? What money are you on about? We're not a wealthy club, Gary. You know, that, but that's another story. I walked into, uh, I bought a house. In fact, Graham Turner was apparently bought, trying to buy the same house. I didn't know. My wife saw it, and my wife loved it, so we bought it. And then um, the man said, oh, oh the uh, villa manager was trying to buy this house. Anyway, we, we've got the house. And my dad walked in. Now, my dad is, uh, I would say, born, not, he, my dad's a Christian. My dad's um, a brilliant, was a brilliant fella, very calm, placid all the time, doesn't swear. You know, he's a lovely geezer. So uh, he walks into the house. I've got this house. It's in... Um, Bassett's pole, five bedroom, detached. Um, they've dug out the, the foundation of the swimming pool. It's got a bar, it's got a sauna, it's got all that. Like, it's, it, I mean, it is like a dream house. So I said to my mum and dad, come over. Just got the house, we've got everything in lights. So they've come over. My dad walked in and he went, F this son, you cracked it. <laughs> and then I thought, yes, I think I have. I was in there about 18 months before the wife kicked me out. But that's another story. <laughs> I was going to ask just generally about your your experience with Doug because obviously, you know, God rest his soul, is this yeah. almost like a caricature, wasn't he? You know, he was football chairman weren't famous, were they back then? No, except, Doug. except, for, except for Doug, yeah. And and he he reveled in it. He loved it. He wanted to be at the centre of uh, everything that was going on. I came to Aston Villa. I've met him before because Ron Wiley and Doug were very very close. They was always doing bits and bobs, and I bit went to his house a couple of times, and he spent a lot of time telling me how much things were. Oh, that vase that cost me two thousand pounds. I was like, that's great. Anyway, I signed for Aston Villa. I would say me and Doug had a massive falling out about the money I was owed. Uh, in the end, Graham Taylor, to be fair to Graham, he he fought my, my corner, and at the time, me and Graham were, were barely speaking, and he fought me corner. He got me money. I think he just wanted me to get off to Watford, but he got me the money. But uh, yeah, me and Doug never spoke for about so about 10, 12 years. And one day I'm doing a corporate at Villa and I walk, I'm walking past and I see him and I'm like, basically, and like, uh, so he looks at me, he says, hello, young man. He says, how are you doing? And I can't carry grudges, mate. So I'm like, yeah, not too bad, Mr. Ellis. How are you doing? I'm all right. And as he's walking past, he goes, uh, is that Dalian Atkinson? And I'm like, you turned. He started smiling and I, he mugged me off and I was like, oh, yeah, good and dog, fair enough. He wanted to be at the centre of everything, when the year we went down, Abdul Rashid tells a story that apparently Billy McNeil is our, apparently Billy McNeil's our gaffer. Doug's the chairman. Doug, when the team was picked on a Friday, Billy had to because Billy used to rush back to Manchester, but Doug insisted he stay and um, you know do do your work and that or look like you're doing work. So Billy be in the office. So Doug would uh, want to know the team. Billy wouldn't tell him the team. So Doug would put down, walk down to the office and slip a piece of paper under the under the, the door of what Doug felt the team should be. Then Billy McNeil apparently would cross a few names out, go back and put the team there that he thought. And this apparently went back all, all Friday afternoon. Obviously, it really worked because we got relegated. But uh, a lot of people really liked Doug. And I, I've got a lot of respect for him because we could have gone the same way as Leeds. We could have gone and bought all these players and done this and that. I mean, the amount of players apparently he had in, um, in, in the office at Villa and then decided, no, we're not doing that. Because we could have spent an awful lot of money. And if the recruitment's not right, you're in trouble. So, in a way, you got for all... And a lot of us have grievances with Doug. A lot of us can also say, without him, the club wouldn't be where it is today because we could have gone down the same road as a lot of the other clubs at the time who just wanted to spend big and get to the Holy Grail. And like after the time, the players you bought were never going to be good enough. So, when you arrived in the summer of 1986, mm. probably mid to late 20s, did you feel like you were in your prime then? Tom. Yeah, I was 20, uh, 26. Um, I, I felt that this was the, the uh, this was the time I'd scored a lot of goals at West Brom, scored a lot of goals at Coventry, not so many at Sheffield Wednesday, but I, I, I just felt I needed to be in a team that would create opportunities for me. I always worked hard, put myself around, like, and Aston Villa was always a team that played with wingers, got balls into the box. Happy days, I'm going to score goals. 
I go in there and um, I, I felt it was the perfect move for me. When you look at it realistically, within, I would say, two to three weeks, they ended up with a team of young kids, a, a, basically, essentially a youth team, and because they were cutting corners financially, and they've ended up um, buying myself, Keown and Neil Cooper. Um, Keown was a kid. He was learning the ropes. Ke um, Cooper was always injured, and I never scored enough goals. But I don't think, if I'd have scored 25 goals, I don't think it would have stayed up. The, the club was, had a lot of players there who were ready to go, didn't want to be there. And um, it was just time for a, a complete revamp. And Graham Taylor, to be fair, was that man. Was it literally, was it seriously just a matter of weeks before you got that vibe yourself that, 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 yeah. that this was a bit of a hiding to nothing then? We, we did, we did pre-season. And um, I was with Howard Walkinson the season before. Howard Walkinson is a very, very doer man, but he knows his football. And he breaks sessions down. So you know how players or, or teams nowadays, they, they break it all down in as much as, you can end up, you work with your back four and then you work with your midfield and you, then you bring the midfield together with the back four or you work with your strikers and then you bring the midfield players and the wide players in and you add to it all the time like Howard was doing it. And we'd be standing at Sheffield Wednesday going, oh, he's going to break it all down. Let's have a five-a-side. I'll go to Aston Villa and none of this is going on. It's like, oh, we'll have a five-a-side bit of crossing shoot and end off. But by then, everybody else is moving on. And so when Shorey said it to me, I, I, I'd done that, the vibe anyway. But uh, I'm thinking that ah, new club, like, you know, you want to show you're worthy of being at a new club. So you, 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 you pass a lot of things by because, you know, I'm at Aston Villa, finally, waited all these years. This is my chance, like. And there were, there were things wrong. There's always things wrong at every club you go to. But I went to Aston Villa and within two to three weeks, in fact, there was a pre-season game. Chef, um, the lads from Sheffield Wednesday, Mark Chamberlain, Gary Megson, uh, Gary Shelton, Lee Chapman, they came down to, to watch me. We played Port Vale in a pre-season friendly. We played the game. I met them after. We were having a poor heart as well. We were having a drink. And um, they went, Shelley went to me, big man, you lot could go down. And I went, oh, Shelley, what's the matter with you? And he went, no, he says, you look And I was like, seriously? And then that stayed in my mind. So two or three days later, um, we played another pre-season game. I think we went to Italy. And because it was Italy and they're Italians and their defensive is strong and all that, you think, oh, well, it's a good workout and that. We played Spurs first game of the season. Uh, Richard Goff made his debut. Now, on a general basis, um, I play against Richard Goff. I slap him all over the gaff. Richard Goff, look, he comes out of it looking like um, Virgil van Dijk. But the whole Spurs side looked pretty good that day. And I'm thinking, this, this can't be right. Anyway, went on for a bit. And then I just realised we well, was banging trouble. I don't know how to say this without putting words in your mouth. But was, was Graham Turner out of his depth? Was it a job too big for him? Or was it just a kind of combination of him being a rookie manager and having to deal with a club that was facing up to the fact that they were, were no longer European champions. Yeah, I think basically Graham Turner's come in as a young manager. He's learning the ropes, He's but he's got Doug Ellis guiding his every move. So basically, Doug Ellis wants to become the manager. I think for initially, Graham fought against it. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but looking from when I walked in, I'm looking at a young manager who is now, I wouldn't say shot, but... Uh, He's on the ed edge of his nerves now, like he's uh, he's very edgy. But when I signed for Aston Villa, this is the first warning sign. And when I tell people, they go, and that wasn't a red flag to you, Tom. I turn up to a meeting. I get called to a meeting. Um, Sheffield Wednesday have agreed the deal. Howard's rang, rang for Mexico, by the way. He's only watching Maradona do his thing. And he's gone, uh, now then, Aston Villa made a bid for you. You can go, you can stay. Now, I keep saying, if you'd have said, well, big man, you know, this year we've got we've got the semi-final of the cup, we've done this, we've gone third in the league, I want you to stay, we can score more goal, blah, blah, blah. I might have thought about it, but the way he said it, I'm like, I'm kill him off. I went and had your talks and that. But when I went to have the talks, we met at Doug's house. In in that house, in that meeting, was Ron Wiley, the assistant manager, and Doug Ellis. So I sit there, and they start talking, and Doug offers me the threat once a week, and I go, oh, yeah. And then I go, hang on a sec. They're breaking out the champagne. I'm like, hang on a sec. Well, who's the manager? Because <laughs> usually the manager is the one that tells you how the team's going to play or how it sees you fitted in and all that, which Graham Turner had done a year before when he was trying to get me to yeah. turn everybody down at the side for Aston Villa on the cheap. They went, don't worry about that. That, that will take care of itself. <laughs> and there's me like a complete numb nuts going, oh, all right. And uh, I think Graham lasted six weeks. I, I did the free season. Uh, he was as good as gold. Lovely fella. I've met him at since. And we played Notts Forest and we got beat 6 0. I remember coming in at full time, I was fuming. And like, uh, there was me, Stevie Hunt was there, and me, I known Stevie from through West Brom, Coventry, and Steve's a Villa fan as well. We've come in and Gra Graham 
Turner went to um, David Norton and myself. You two sit in a corner. So I was sitting in a corner and he, he he proceeded to, he went, I'll take them two out of it because it says, it says they're crap, but they've run their bar off. You lot! And he proceeded to eviscerate them for the next like 25 minutes. And it was the, the last last shot of a man that knew he was going to get the sack. And so obviously he, he got the bullet. Then Billy comes in. Billy comes in with the, uh, now Billy's passing out. And so I, I don't like to say things horrible about people that passed tonight because they've got no right to reply. Billy McNeil came in as a great leader, a great captain, um, a good manager in Scotland, came to Aston Villa. Man City got relegated and Villa got relegated the same season. And he was manager of both clubs. I found that not that of his depth, I think that the Man City thing had knocked him back so much that by the time he came to Villa, you know, normally managers get the sack and they give themselves a few weeks or a few months to, you know, where did I go wrong and re, you know, debrief. He jumped straight from that to this and walked straight into Doug Ellis and Aston Villa and what was a part of it. And like, uh, I don't really blame Billy McNeil, uh, but I don't think, not, not he helped himself. I, I, don't, I think the situation ran away from him. I don't think he controlled the situation. I think that Graham Turner's a young manager learning the ropes. Billy McNeil comes in as a bit more experienced, but they all come up against Doug Ellis, who's trying to pick the team on the cheap. So you've got, you got massive problems there. In terms of that that Forest game that, that ended up seeing off Graham Turner, and I I only know of it by legend, to be honest. You can't get the clips of it or, or whatever. I don't, know Villa, that. I don't know whether Villa produced a kind of a, a VHS story <laughs> yeah. of the season that year. Probably yeah. not. I don't think John Greenfield had been able to shift that in the club shop. What I hear about, and again, if you're not comfortable talking about this, let me know. But Steve Hodge apparently had a mare and his head had yeah. already gone there and his head had been turned by playing in the World yeah. Cup and yeah. he wanted a big move and stuff like that. And because of that, Villa fans, you know, he, he's the ultimate kind of villain now. He's in villain, yeah. villain with an eye. Mm. Was it was it that bad? Was it that that noticeable to you guys, his teammates? It, yeah, it's noticeable to us. It's like the Harry Kane thing now. He, Steve Hodge goes away, plays in the World Cup, comes back, wants to leave, expects to leave. The deal doesn't happen. He's stuck at Aston Villa. Steve Hodge, for me, and I get on well with Hodge, he's an attacking midfield player. Doesn't really want to get involved in midfield creativity and graft and all that. Breaks forward, joins him with a centre forward, scores goals. And uh, that's all he kept doing. Because he all he wanted to do then was try and score goals to to keep his name in a, in a to keep himself in the English squad keep his name at the forefront to get the move that he always believed he was going to get. Apparently, at one stage, he was going Man United. Then it turns out, well, he left for Spurs in the end. But uh, Hodgie became a lightning rod for everything that was going wrong. And Mick Darks and myself, because I was I was a big signing and I was a local kid. But uh, Hodgie took an awful lot of abuse. And uh, I, I mean, I, I would imagine a few players hid behind him a little bit. And, oh, thank God for that. It's not me. But uh, Hodgie did take some serious abuse. That day at Forest, he was bad. But then most of us was bad most of the time. Like, uh, because it was Forrest as well, and because it was Steve Hodge, because he was an England star and that, uh, it became an obvious target. He's not trying hard enough. He wants to get away. He's, he's, he's chucking it in. Hodge worked hard. I don't think his heart's in it. I think it's not anything. If you're doing something, your heart's not in it. It does show in your performance. And I don't think he wanted to be here. And I think he was the happiest Larry when he went to Spurs that time. Um, like, was it Christmas? He left. But uh, yeah. I, I, the Villa fans had a go at him. I can understand that because you could watch people play sometimes. I mean, I watched um, Kenneth Sahor play for West Brom the other day. This is the week after he'd had a shock. he come on a sub and apparently it was so bad that they they wanted to bring him off, but they couldn't. He played the week later against the kids. And I'm not watching the game and I'm going, he's trying to come off. This is 15 minutes into it. And I think they, Villa fans, would see that with Oji and think he don't want to be there. Yeah, get him off and all that. Like. So, yeah, Oji did take an awful lot of abuse. Like. So, in terms of that relegation season then, yeah. and we did get, we got Steve Hunt on the podcast um, a, a, a couple of months ago. Yeah. And because he's from a family of Villa fans, he said it was even more unbearable because oh. you, couldn't, you couldn't escape it. Was, was that your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, my dad's a Villa fan and all his mates works at Longbridge. They're all Villa fans. So when everything's going sweet, great. When they Villa beat Coventry, as they invariably did, and I went into the players' lounge after, they just took the p out of us. And they they loved, they loved, they reveled in it, let's be fair. So, like, obviously, when I joined, and, oh, Gaz has, oh, Gaz has come and all that, and all of a sudden, our oh, Gaz is because the ball board don't score no goals. <laughs> then, obviously, they they took some abuse. So, actually, I took some abuse. Every uh, every second weekend, I'd have my lads and my missus, and we'd go up to my mum's to Sunday dinner. It became a trial because usually 
I'm not all the time, but there was a lot of times when on that Sunday I'd been sent off on the Saturday. So I'd go and my dad would open the door and go, oh, you again. What's the matter with you? <laughs> but that became every every time I went with Villa, he just opened the door. And in the end, he didn't even speak. He just, he just it, like black people suck their teeth. He'd be like, just one of them. Like, all right, dad. <laughs> so, yeah, the worst bit was me, dad. I, I, after a game, Gary Shaw used to insist that we stopped by Villa Park, the public Villa Park, stop and have one pint. And so the fans half knew we was there. And they get yeah, f- and all that. But we stopped and have a drink of that. And like, after a bit, they realised, even though we were sh- we weren't complete like because we stopped and have a drink with them like so like yeah i mean then me and sure we to town and uh, <laughs> do whatever we did but uh yeah i mean uh, we took a lot of abuse as a local lad i took so much so, so much stick that in the end i i, I, I cracked up with um it started as a, um, a groin injury but then became a career th- threatening injury and to be honest i sat on the pitch against man city and i couldn't get up andy gray got me up in the end he shouldn't have played and that and uh i went off the pitch and even though by then we were down anyway, but it was almost it was almost a relief just to get away from the constant. Everywhere I turned, I was getting abused. You know, like you see them cartoons where you turn and you get punched in the face, and then you duck down and you look around and you get someone else punching you in the face. You put your hands over your face, and then you, as soon as you look down, put move your hands to look down, someone else punches you in the face. It was like that. It was great fun. Thank goodness for Grant Grant Taylor then. In that sense, I mean, was I know the answer to this question, but you might as well answer it for me. Was he exactly what Villa needed at that exact moment? Yeah, yeah, per- the perfect guy. I mean, Graham walks in. Now I've been injured for the best part of two months by now. Like, so I've become the town the town heckler, and like I'm just taking the mickey out of everything that's going on because the club's a disgrace and all that. Anyway, Doug calls a meeting, so we're all in the um, the canteen. Doug pulls up in his big Bentley, comes in, opens the door. Gentlemen, may I introduce you to the next manager of Aston Villa? Massive smile on his face. And we're all sitting there. You can imagine a bunch of big-time Charlies who have failed and um, still want to give it the bigger. So people are sitting there lounging on seats and all that. Who's this Graham Taylor bursts through the door. Thank you, Mr. Ellis. You can close the door now on your way out. So Doug goes out the door and he says, right then. He says, your first things you lot will throw at me is, who's he? Where's he played? What's he ever done in his career? I'll tell you what, I played for Grimsby and Scunthorpe. I got a bad injury at 28, my career ended, blah, blah, blah. That's my career out of the way. Now let's talk about you. And all of a sudden, a few people prick up. So he starts, I think it was, um, might have been Dorigo. He went up first. Dorigo, have you, uh, could you say you give your best for Aston Villa this season? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%, mate. So how come you sort of signed a deal or agreed a deal to go to Chelsea at Christmas? Oh, so me and Hunty start prick up now. I'm going to say, Paul Elliott. As it go, Paul Elliott. And Paul Elliott's going off to it. Uh, was it Bari or Italy he was going like? And then he started picking people up and Graham seemed to know what every, every a lot of them had dug their escape tunnels. So I mean, you're sitting there going, me, this guy's a spot on. He's nailing this a bad time. So we, we, we're the cheerleaders. I'll play Graham. So like, then he turned, he didn't even look at me and he went, and you? And he said, you run around with your socks around your ankles. He said, you don't score no goals. In fact, you get more bookings than goals. And now you're injured. You're no good to me. You might as well just f*** off. And I went, yeah, all right. He went, he's still here. Get out! <laughs> I've got out, like, and as I went out the door, closed the door, and I could see a few people giggling, and I thought they don't realise this feeling. This fellow ain't playing games. I wait for him, and we all go for a beer as you do, and we're talking about it. But me and Hunty are saying like, this geezer is he's exactly. It might not be pleasant, but he's exactly what we needed. And uh, the next day was the, the, when I knew this club was on the right track again. Like, I pull up in the uh, the car park, and Warren Aspinall. He's coming back. And I could see Steve Harrison, Graham Taylor and Bobby Downs standing there in their suits, the Villa suits. Warren Aston was walking back to his car. So I'm sitting there and I know something's afoot, so like, I've got to play this clever at you. So uh, I get out of the car and I see Aston and we call him Formby because of the teeth and that. So I said, Forms, what are you doing? He just went, good luck, got in the car and drove off. <laughs> right. So now you can imagine, to my right-hand side is the, the pitches, all the pitches, beautiful, lush and that. So I'm injured anyway. So I start walking over to the pitches, picking up a bit of grass, getting the feel of the wind, and oh yeah, the wind's blowing that way. But I'm trying to get round the back so I can get into the into the dressing rooms and that. They let me. I mean, like they must have been. Look at this idiot! I come all round round the back, so I'm behind them now, and I just get me hand on the door. He goes, "Can I ask you a question?" I mean, yeah, yeah. What was it? He said, "Where do you live?" I said, uh, "Bass's Pole, about five minutes away." He says, uh, "Describe your house." So I'm like, well, I've got five bedrooms, detached. 
I got the foundations up for a swimming pool, third of an acre. I got a bar. I got study. I got this. I got that. And he goes, that's, that's, that's really nice. He says, um, what do you think your, your neighbours think when they see you of a morning there? And I went, well, they probably think there's Tom off to work, off to training. That was it. And he went, no, he says, they probably think they're that scruffy f Look at him going up. He says he looks like he looks like a trap. He says he says you look like the black fonz. He said look at you because I I because I was like hang on a minute. I had a white t-shirt, a leather jacket, jeans, and trainers, no socks, obviously. And uh, you look like black fonz. You if you're coming to work, he says you come in slacks and a shirt, or you and shoes. And he says or you come in a tracksuit because this is your job. Now home, get some gear on to come to work. And I went right okay, got it from tomorrow. Spot on. And he went. No, go home now. And so I had to drive, I'd say all the way, I was going to drive back. My missus, I locked the door, come in, and she went, what's happened? I told her, she f***ed herself laughing, and she went, exactly what you like needed. So then I thought, she's part of it as well. She must have thought we was right. So yeah, then I knew this geezer weren't playing games, and I was injured at the time. And it, But I saw the way they trained and what he did, and the standards he, he wanted from them. And uh, yeah, you could see it was going to be, it was going, in the right, going to go in the right direction. He weren't going to suffer fools. He got rid of a lot of players. Had I been fit, I think I might have been one of them. Um, yeah, it was it was perfect. You've been injured for the first couple of months of that season in yeah. Division Two back then, and been able to watch, you know, at close enough proximity to see what he was doing. Did that give you that real incentive? Because I know that you hit the ground running as soon as you got back in that team. Yeah, only because Jim Walker. Um, they were talking about the injury, and they were on about um, taking a bit, a bit of bone from a hip, putting it in my pelvis, and fusing it. And I, they tried it with Dave Norton. And I saw what happened with Dave Norton. I, I was with the doctor and I was like a nodding dog. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, sounds right, yeah. Walked out the room, I said to Jim, there's no way that is happening to me. So Jim's like, okay, we'll find another solution. I get me fit again, break down, come back. And then uh, Jim takes me to see some fella in um, Derby, Paddy Armour. And he goes to see him. I walk in the room, he goes, uh, like a little blunt man, bald-headed. And he goes, uh, get your kit off. And I went, Smith Sudden, we've only just met. <laughs> no smile, nothing. Get your kit off. So I strip off naked. Like he starts prodding me all over the gaff. He's prodding parts of my body that I don't I don't really allow him to be prodded. Anyway, he puts his fingers in me groin. I don't need to touch this, the roof like. I'll come down off of that. He washes his hands. He says, What? Yep, exactly what I thought it was. And uh, gives Jim the information. Jim drives me back, and I've still got a tear in my eye because it was so painful when he just put his finger into my body and that. Turns out that um, they call it inguinal ring hernia, and uh, it just ripped a hole in my stomach that was ripping up. And every time I got fit and moved left, right, sit there, left and right, bang, it rip again. So it was one of them where no one knew what it was, and I could. I mean, Doug offered me twenty five grand to retire. That twenty five grand that he owed me, he offered me that to leave. So yeah, it was. Uh, but Graham would have got rid of would have got rid of me. I got I was fit. I got fit. I saw the way they were training. I saw the way, things he wanted to do. I remember he did he used to run around Body Maurice, and you have to run around five times, I think, in 18 minutes. If you didn't make it, you went again. <laughs> so you imagine some people just you know, just walking around in there like the so-called fatties because they're like, hey, you can't run. And Graham wanted your fit. He wanted certain things done. Then he brought in Lillis, uh, David Hunt, Kevin Gay. He brought in just basically average players, but honest average players who would work hard. And um, he got the whole thing going then. He, he just, he, he really turned it around. I mean, he brought in honest people and um, the other lads reacted well off of that. Uh, McAnally's obviously come in as well. And Macca was brought to replace the centre-forward, didn't score no goals. Macca got injured after about a week and we became best mates. And Graham hated that. It really killed him. At what stage did you suspect that, that Villa were going straight back up? You know, was he... Late in the season, or did you did you secretly fancy yourself fancy yourselves early on? Yeah, I, I mean, initially when Graham came, the first um, say six or seven games, especially at Villa Park, it became a horrendous thing to, to watch. Grown men wilt under the pressure, uh, the expectation that Aston Villa are going to um, wipe the floor with whoever they're playing and going to win the game. Then all of a sudden, Graham saying, "Right, you're going to go into schools, you're going to meet people. These fans hate you. You're going to get a connection with the fans again." So he's, he started to do all that. He started to do stuff off the pitch and that. But I'm watching at what they're doing. I'm watching the things he's trying to do, how he's trying to develop things and uh, just setting standards again, making sure that 
you didn't slip below certain standards in your training, in your dress, in the way you conducted yourself. He also made sure we went to hotels before before games, home and away. So we're always together. So we got that bond. The likes of Kevin Gage, myself, Maka, we're all good, we're all good mates because we spent so much time together and we obviously won together. But yeah, everything he did was what you need to do to bring a club back together because the club was fragmented and it needed bringing it back together and Graham did that. And it's, by the time, I think I did a thing for the BBC and, and my, my greatest game or favourite game or something. And uh, I mentioned it was, uh, we played Bradford, beat them 4-2. And Bradford... A few weeks before, it was my first game back and um, I'd be obviously come back from the injury and um, Graham said to me uh, the day of the Bradford game, he says, uh, what, lads, we always train in the morning. And I was jogging around with the others and he said, come here, come over. He says, what do you think? And I thought he meant, you know, what do you think about being sub tonight? Because I've not played the game. And I went, that would be lovely. Obviously, we finished our warm-up with that. And he calls everybody together. Now, Graham, you know, loves to talk. So Graham calls everybody again. He says, right, he says, um, this is what's wrong with this football club. I've got my centre forward here. You know the one. He doesn't score any goals and runs around his socks around his ankles. Don't you know that fella? I say to him, what would you like to you know, the chance of playing for Aston Villa, the club you're supposed to support? You've got a chance to play for them tonight. What do you reckon? And you know what your words were? Oh, it'd be nice. And I went, well, it, it didn't come quite. And he went, oh, no, I'm talking. And he, he slapped me down. Anyway, I'm fuming. Play the game. I played for 60 minutes. I do okay. We get beat 4-0 or 5-0. The next day, it was in a Simod Cup or some competition. Like The next day, I go in for a, what is a massage in that and a bath. I've had the demon on my shoulder, Gary Shaw, who, who said, you've been out for 11 months, big man. We've got to go for a beer. So we end up going for a beer. I get home about three in the morning, um, go training, thinking I'm just going to be sitting in a bath. Graham goes, get your kit on, takes me out on the pit on um, over the road. So we go over the road, by the church and we Aston Hall, we go over there and he runs me to every part of Aston Hall. I see parts of that place I, I never want to see again. Bits and pieces available on YouTube, but not that much. I've just before before you joined us for this, I've been watching your goals against Blues at St Andrews. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and rerunning those. Yeah. Was that the trademark for you, really? Those you know, two big kind of towering headers. Is, is that what, what what became your bread and butter throughout your career? That's that's what people perceive. That I, I could do, but if you see me goals at West Brom, I score left foot, right foot. I mean, what the one goal against Villa when we beat Villa, um, I think the snow couldn't Villa and one nil up again, and um, it's the last 12 minutes of the game. I score a goal where I've done, I've, I've dribbled into the box. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I did do the double step over and put it in the top corner on my left foot. And uh, Spinksy never moved for it because he had no idea where it was going, mind you, apparently, nor did I. So, like, yeah, I mean, I, I scored, like I say, left foot, right foot. I did get headers. But, uh, yeah, I was um, people just assumed because I was fairly big and all that, I was decent in the air, that I scored a load of headers. But uh, the Villa game, that the Villa fans will talk about that game, but they were both good headers. The first one, I'm more I'm ap- not happier with, but more impressed with that because the first one's, a, um, I think it's a gauge he whips the ball in, but it's going towards the middle of the goal. And Vince Overson tries to kick my head off. Now, Vince tries to go for the ball, he clears the ball probably, but I dive across him, get the header, score after a few minutes. The other one, when, um, I mean, it might be Birchie and, or Mark Lillis and Gagey rolls it back to him. Gagey, I mean, the ball comes down with snow on it. Gagey's become a legend for scoring, for making this goal. But basically, he's hoofed it in the air and I'm, I'm somehow, somehow, got on the end of it and scored. But yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with them too. Like, yeah. Just a brief mention, David Platt's arrived... Yeah, kind of halfway through that season, uh, I think I think Graham complained a little at the time about having to pay over the odds for him. I think because I think I think there was a, a bidding war going on or whatever. Yeah. Um, what was his influence like, Tomo, in that first season? Uh, David came. He was pretty pretty quiet, really. I mean, he's come to a, a new new club. It's full of characters. You've got the likes of the Andy Gray's there, um, the, the black Andy Gray, the powerhouse. There's McAnally, who's one of the loudest men. His volume control's broken. There's myself, who potentially could be the class of the same. Um, Lillis. We had we had a squad of players, of characters, and that were good characters, and that. So he's come in, and Platy's um, he's quiet, easy going, just get to know everybody. But he plays up front with me the first few games, and then uh, Graham puts him in the midfield. But the interesting thing about Graham, about Platy was Graham had a meeting before everything, like, and he's having a meeting one day, and we finished training, he's talking. And he goes, and you, to play, he says, uh, I'm going to watch you about 10 times. And he goes, and you're okay passing it. You, you can run about a bit. You're okay in the air. You, you know, you've got a shot, have you? And we're all like, what's he signing for then? 
And apparently, he said, my missus went, sign him in the end. He'll it, be all right for us. Like, he's what, he's what you want. on his hard working. He goes, so I signed you because my missus, you want to be grateful to my missus. So we were like, oh. But to be honest, we took the mickey out of him then. Then um, we went, at the end of the season, we got promoted. We went to uh, Magaluf for a week. Platy, when he first came, me and McAnally and everybody looked after him because you don't like the new kid to be on his own. So you make sure, you know, he's, he's occupied and do things with him and that. And I think he got the warning from Graham Taylor, stay away from Thompson and Shaw. Because after that, we came back. <laughs> Platy, not letting him speak to us, but we had there's a bit of distance. But you could see from that, after that season, you could see Platy developing into a, a hell of a player. Great engine. We used to call him the poor man's Brian Robson. Because when they signed Cascarino, I went to I used to still go to the park, watch games. So one day I'm watching a game. I think Ormeroid had been and gone, or he's still there. Cascarino's come. And he's getting hammered by the Villa fans. And so I'm like, he's crap, Tomo. And I'm like, I says, if you watch the game, kid, I says, Cascarino, even though he does look fit and that, and apparently he had a massive poker thing going on to four in the morning most nights, he'd chase the ball into the channel, lay the ball back, say it's a ball from Sid, he'd get hold of it, lay it back, and then someone's winging it into the box. I says, who's on the end of it? Platy. I said, yeah, Platy has got about 25 goals, but Cascarino get three. And that's what happened. Platy got, got all his goals, got, got his move in the end, but Platy was a good footballer. Uh, very intelligent, bright in what he wanted to do, knew his strengths and uh, exploited them massively. I mean, good player and like... Even though he distanced himself from myself and Shaw and that, he's a good lad as well, played. Obviously, it goes down to the, the final game and he's the, the draw at Swindon at the end yeah. of the season. I mean, I think you've said that you went to, to Magaluf for that summer, but what, what were the, what were the celebrations? Like, where did you... I'm, I'm going all over the place. Where did you used to drink in town anyway? Where did you used to go out on a Saturday night? I think it was... Was it Edwards? There was a, a bar in the gas street. We'd go in there, we'd end up in Bobby Brown's or Liberty's or... Basically, any any place that served alcohol and had uh, music and women, me and Shory be in and around it. Like, yeah, we'd be we'd be all over, all over. There was no set. We go um, to Cork and Bottle um, after a game. We'd always go there. We'd have a few drinks, go to Cork and Bottle, and then it was off. I was single by then, so like, yeah, we just we in the town, we partying, we doing whatever. And like, Graham hated it because he liked to be in control of everything. He wanted to know where we were all the time, and it bothered him that we. We'd be out and see. By then, I think he's already made his mind up. Sure, and myself have got to go. And uh, I think sure he does go not, not long after. But uh, yeah, we we drink all over the place. There was no set horn because people we'd be in Mere Green, we'd be in Wild Green, we'd be in town, we'd, be, we'd pop up everywhere. That season, then you've 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 it's mission accomplished. You've, yeah. you've got promotion back at the first attempt. Yeah. What's what's the vibe like in the club? Do you get promotion bonuses or am I? Has <laughs> that happened no. to clubs with different chairmen? Yeah, different chairman. I mean, Doug came in after the game at Swindon. And uh, to be fair, Graham would uh, give us a glass of wine or um, Prosecco or something on the Friday as a congratulations for the season. And I thought, well, hang on a sec, we're, we're jumping the gun here. we still got to go to Swindon and get a result. Anyway, as it turns out, we get the result. Doug comes in the dressing room after, and there's all pictures of us with champagne and messing about. Apparently, I've got my shirt off and uh, I'm packing some heat with the guns and all that. But that's a long time ago. And uh, Doug comes in. He says, right. He said, because of what you've done, I'm going to take you to. And one of the lads said something. He, and he, they said he was going to say Mauritius. And when one of the lads said something and there was a little laugh and that, gave me the old, Magaluf, you can go to. And we were like, oh, all right. Yeah. Took us to Magaluf for a week. But the atmosphere, we were good lads who mixed well with each other, which is what Graham wanted. We went to... Did community, he called it community service. You go into the city, you do uh, functions, you meet fans, you, you do all sorts, Q and A. You do everything. Just get to mingle with the fans again, get a connection going with the fans again. And so, like, um, the vibe was really good between us. I remember sitting there, standing there at Swindon, watching Graham when everyone was dancing around, and I said to McAnally, "Look at him, the wanker." And he went, "What?" Oh. I said, "He's fucking. He's already plotting." It was getting rid of. You could see him look at, look at him. <laughs> And obviously, I, I, was like, I can't believe it. We just got promotion. But when you think about it, that's what a proper manager does, right? These lads have done ever so well for me, but I'm going to need to add, like, add, say, Sid Cowens. I'm going to need to add such and such because we need to be better. And, like, Graham was, I mean, I fell out with that fella massively, made up with him. He fought with the chairman to get the money that I was owed. Um, and we'd never spoke for 10 years. Then I walk into um, a um, 2020 cricket match and we gravitate to each other and we, we start speaking. We have to thrash it out. Good as gold. Tell me a little bit about that then, because you're obviously on a high following promotion. Yeah. At that time, did you feel like 
like Taylor had got you in his sights, or did you feel like your Villa career was going into overdrive? I would say overdrive, but then I am a man of incredible optimism. When uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was top scoring in what is now the Premier League, and there was Bannister, who I knew was a kid at Coventry, and Chrissy Waddle, who I knew was a kid at Coventry, and West Brom played Newcastle. And it was like Boxing Day or whatever. But the word was, one of us was going to get called up for the full side, one of us was going to get called up for the England B or under 23s, and one of us could make our own arrangements. And so we know, so we're all chatting before the game. And I said, have you heard the news? They said, yeah, yeah, we've all heard it. And I said, which one of you two is going to end up in the under-23s or the Bs? And obviously, as it turned out, <laughs> it didn't quite work out. Waddle did what Waddle did, got in the full side, banished to play for the Bs, and I made my own arrangements. So, yeah, I, I had massive love of my ability. And um, I just believed that I was, I was what was classed as a, a top division player. And OK, I had a bad injury, but I just thought we're back where we belong, going to crack on again. Graham saw it a different way. Graham, when we spoke that day at um, 2020, and I, I talked to him about it, and he said, your injury had made you a good, champ- say, say Championship Premier League, a good Championship player. So you were no good to me in what is now going to be the Premier League. But he said, your ego was so big because he said, uh, I was running the club and you thought you were running the club. So one of us had to go anyway. But he said that you wouldn't have accepted being on the bench and uh, coming on and doing a bit here and there. But I said, well, if you'd have said, sat me down and said to me, big man, this is the only way you're going to play for Villa by being an understudy to McInerney or whatever, then I'd have had to accept it. because I'd have been trying to prove him wrong, but I'd, have, I'd accept it because I didn't want to leave. I'd, uh, I'd met my girlfriend and my wife. I was, I was happier again. Um, my family was here. I was playing for Aston Villa. We were back in the Premier League. So what we did was so wrong, we'd made right. All of a sudden, I want a chance to kick on again. So yeah, I mean, maybe it's, maybe he's right. Maybe my ego was so big that I wouldn't have accepted it. But uh, at the time, as I say, if he'd have said to me at the time, I think I might have done okay. I'll prove you wrong because that's all I've done all my life. But yeah, the atmosphere was good. The vibe was good with the lads, um, and I, I, I felt we were going to crack on again. I believed, you know, Watford came into the the top division and finished second or third and blew the blew the division away. I felt we'd probably do something like that. Add a couple of players, but I thought we'd do that. So when did it become clear? When did the penny drop <coughs> that you you didn't really have a part to play anymore? Um, my brother died in that... Well, he took ill just before the Swindon game. Uh, turned out he had pancreatic cancer. They never told me until after the game. And then uh, that that two months or whatever we was off, I was there every day in the, good, the hospital with him. Uh, the Priory, sorry. And... Um, I met, Graham gave us all a sheet and said, do this work. After two weeks off, do this work every every two or three days to keep yourself ticking over. Because when you come back for pre-season, I want you to hit the ground running. But it's, my brother passes just before pre-season. And um, in fact, no, I did a couple of days of pre-season and then I got the call, went went home, helped my mum and my dad. Because obviously parents don't bury, it, they don't bury their kids. So you can imagine it was a massive shock for them. I'm running around doing stuff for my mum and dad and making sure that the death certificate, this and that. So I don't go to training, but every day I'm ringing the secretary and saying, oh, I won't be in today because of this and that. I won't be in until after the funeral. I then turn up after the, the day after the funeral. To be fair, Spinksy and all the lads came to the funeral, which was lovely, because me like my brother knew him anyway. And um, the next day I come in, turn in training, and I remember Kevin Gage pulling me, Steve Sims pulling me and saying, listen, you want to talk to anybody, you need any help, just, just come and speak to, me, speak, speak to me. And I was like, I was made up. And everyone's just pleased to see me. Graham walked in, was chatting away, and then he just said, do you know what's wrong with this club? And then he proceeded to basically slag me off. I, my stepper forward, I've not seen him for like 10 days, I know what he's doing. And he's hammered me. And I've sat there and John Ward's clocked it and John's trying to say, Gary's out. And then he's gone, no. I says, yeah, I'm over here. And then he called me out. We had a little chat and um, basically he said, well, you've got a lot of work to catch up on did the running, and uh, I got the feeling then it wasn't really going to happen for me. And uh, But I've, I've had that most of my career, so I'm always going to prove you wrong. I believe I'm going to be in the team, I'm good enough, I'm going to prove you wrong. So it wasn't a massive problem, and Graham wasn't awkward with me, but then we ended up having what was called the bomb squad. There was myself, Lewis, Birch, there were six of us, and he started making us train on our own. And then I'm still got that belief, oh, I'll get back in and say there'll be an injury, or something like that. And then uh, he started saying we, could, we had to come at two o'clock. So the first team had finished training and we'd come after. So we had no real contact with them apart from match days. And that killed me. That. And then um, I knew by then it, it, it was done. He, uh, he tried to get me to go to Oxford. I went to have talks, but I never made it. There was a crash on the, mo- a crash on the way down. 
but I just there was no mobile phone, so I rang and said, "Listen, there's the accident. I'm, I'm going to turn back." Graham slaughtered me on the Monday. Um, rang the Oxford fella, slaughtered me. Then I'm training. We had uh, by now I'm, I'm I'm an outcast. Like and in the end, there was um, there was an incident with um, Derek Mayfield where I'm ill. I've got flu, but they make me come in to train, and then they make me train with the first team and then practice match. And Alan Evans and, and Derek, I said to him before the game, it's only half an hour game. I said, listen, lads, normally I'd have it with you. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But today, you know when you're bruised all over? I'm like, please, just leave me alone today. Evo, Evo's like a diamond. Evo went, big man, not a problem. Mountfield, you're having it. I'm like, great. He's carried on. And two or three times, ball's come to me. He's, he's, he's smashed into me. In the end, I turn around and says, you come near me again, I'm going to knock you out. Yeah, all right. You all taught you. Next thing, ball came to me. I smacked him. Walked off the pitch. So Graham went, I was seeing me off. He's, I'm, I'm leaving anyway. Next day, um, we have a meeting and we, we thrash it all out. And basically, if I keep my nose clean, get on with training, get on with, you know, get on with stuff, he will get me a move or he'll help me get, get away because I'm never going to play for Aston Villa. Which, there's a, you know, like um, Bodymore, where the cars used to go in and there used to be fans, we watch him players train. There was a fella who used to speak to me every day and he'd say, don't go, don't run away, don't leave this, this club. Club needs people like you. You're a local boy. And I was like, yeah. I said, but I'm not going to train on my own with five lads. And in the end, it came to the point where I'm like, I've got to go, I've got to go. And uh, I jumped to going to Watford. But uh, I, what what killed me with Graham, uh, my mum and dad were very religious and um, the club were going to go to Israel. And uh, my passport was run out. And I was, gonna, I was not on the team anyway, I'm not going to go. And he said, no, no, you're going. I said, well, I'm going to get a passport. He made me go all the way to Plymouth, get it signed. Get you know where you have to get stuff signed by the JP. Drive to Plymouth, wait in the queue for two hours, and all that. Drive back, did all that, got back, put handed me passport in. The list came up the next day. I wasn't on it, and I was I was like kicking it. You back? I was shouting and hollering. And the John Walker out went, big man, do something. Just go home. Now he's up, and I'm having a right. He's up, come out here, you. And like you go home. In the end, they got me out of the place to went home and that. But then I knew it was done. It was over. And like when I finally spoke to him, fifteen years later, and we have it out, I can I can see exactly what his problem was. I can see exactly why he had to do what he had to do. But at the time, it wasn't it wasn't pleasant to take. It wasn't I wasn't having it. I wasn't accepting it. But uh, and, I, and he said I thought I was running the club, and he was running the club. So one of us had to go, and it wasn't going to be him. Are you glad that you had chance to have those clear the air talks with him though at the cricket yeah, yeah. many years later? Yeah, me mate Martin Smith invited me to the um, the twenty twenty. And I went with my nephew, Robbie. And so we walk in. And as I walk in, there's, everyone's there, right, already, because Robbie's always late. So as we walk in the door, he went, oh, I'm going to see a big man. He says, you got your mates over there. I went, who's that then? He went, Graham Taylor. I went, see you later. I went to go. He went, don't be, don't be the child. What's the matter with you? Sit down, enjoy the cricket. So I sat down, had a drink, had a bit of food and all that. And we were both opposite ends. We saw each other. We nodded. Just remembering when um, I made my debut for Crystal Palace against Aston Villa, the uh, Villa could have maybe won the title. And I score on my debut. And Graham comes across and shakes me hand at the end and he says, uh, you realise you've just f***. And I was like, much as I love Villa, I'm f delighted. And they go, oh, Thompson and Taylor have made up with that. It was so completely the opposite. <laughs> so we not spoke apart from that. And then I see him that day and we don't, we don't speak, sort of nod it to each other. And then uh, I was sitting there and I had a drink and he's sitting there having a drink. And before you know it, it's almost as if set up. We, we end up close to each other. And me being the real shy, retiring fellow, I'm like, now then, what about this then? And I have it. And he just starts talking to me. Well, Gary, I did this because of that. You you really think you ran the club. I was running the club. And we ended up chatting. And I was like, oh, I can see where you're coming from again. So, yeah, we just made up. How do you sum up your, your brief spell at Villa? I presume it still fills you with a source of immense pride that you not yeah. only pull up, pulled on the cloud and blue, but you played a massive part in getting Villa back back. In a, in a forward direction, if you like. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's bittersweet in as much um, because of the way we went down and because of how horrible that, that year was all round and then losing my brother and everything. But the fact that we we turned it round, yeah, Graham added some players, but we, we turned it round from what was a horrible situation into something that, as you say, now we're basketball in the Premier League on the back of what we did. I mean, it should never come to that because we should never have gone down, but we went down without a trace as well. We, we didn't even get the playoffs or whatever. We we went down. And so to get to turn it round, to get us back there and to be, they call joint top scorer Warren Aspinall. 
but I did score a goal against Blackburn that they put down as an own goal, which I'm still claiming is mine. So, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just delighted to have played a part in it. I played for the club of support. But I remember when I was seven and my Uncle Charlie took me, or eight, and Uncle Charlie took me to watch Aston Villa. I'm watching them play. I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to be on the pitch. I got to do that. I got to score goals for Aston Villa. I got the fact the fans to chant me and they call me Bruno, which I didn't understand at one time, but then it was explained to me. Um, yeah, so I got to achieve my dream. I, I played for the club I support. And they gave me money. I had the odd drink, Nick the odd bird. Yeah, I can't complain. It was all right. <laughs> no, well, listen, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure going on a trip down memory lane with you. Could Probably could have sp- spoken for another 10 hours just about Villa. Um, yeah. But for anybody, promised we'd give you a book, a big plug, which it's, don't believe a word, it's published, it's it's written, it's produced in conjunction with Bill Howell, formerly yeah. of this parish, former former Villa writer for, for, for the Birmingham Mail. And for people who think, well, Matt, Gary did actually <laughs> have a career beyond those beyond those two and a half years that we've spoken about. There's loads, there's loads more stories in the Gary. Uh, uh, oh about yeah, your brilliant, brilliant time in football and your, and your brilliant life so far. Um, so what I want to do is just say thanks, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, no problem, enjoyed it. You, really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been watching Claret and Blue podcast with me, Matt Kendrick, and the legend that is Gary Thompson. Until next time, up the villa. Thank you for listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please do let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode, but until then, up the villa. Up the villa.